Welcome to Love and Compassion, the podcast where we explore different topics that may challenge our current belief systems and the fears that they generate. Our hope is that through dialogue, you, the listener, will be inspired and motivated in new ways on your own journey to living a more loving and compassionate life. Please welcome your host, Giselle Taraba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Love and Compassion podcast. My guest today has devoted the last 20 years of his life studying spirituality and self-help. He spent eight years with the Ashaya monks and has spent the last 27 years self-employed as a tattoo artist. He has also authored the book, Be Love, available on Amazon. Currently, he's working on his next book, Awakening the Reality of What Is. He hopes that this podcast inspires you to reach to the depths of your soul and to begin to awaken to your life's destiny. Please join me in welcoming Ned Burwell. Welcome, Ned. Good morning, Giselle. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this podcast with you. Oh, it's it's a real pleasure. Mm-hmm. This is going to be uh, a very great experience, I'm sure, for us and hopefully the listeners as well. It's our pleasure to serve you, and it's our our highest desire to help you awaken and to deepen the the knowledge that you already have within. And that's so important right now. It is, absolutely. I'd actually like to begin by chatting about tattoos, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I feel that tattoos allow people to express their authentic selves. So I was wondering if you could share what inspired you to become a tattoo artist. When I was 10 years old, a friend gave me a magazine and... As soon as he did that, it was almost like I had this calling. I I couldn't shake the idea of doing tattoos. You know, as as I looked through the pages, I was completely enamored with the markings on the skin. And but there was just this internal drive in me that I I wanted to do it. I felt like I had to do it. It It's like I was being called to do it. So what I've come to to realize is that I feel like I've been a tattooist in many past lives. Now, when I say past lives, um, I don't feel like we have past lives. So here, here's a, a, a little deeper concept. I feel that our past and future lives all collapse into the eternity of this moment. So all of that all those future and past lives, I felt like, you know, not at the time, but when I look back now, I feel like all of that was pulling me into becoming a tattoo artist. In tattooing, it was, it was the the perfect storm or the perfect tool for me to wake up in in my life. Because I desperately wanted to wake up. Tattooing, you know, went on to provide me with with great solitude. It was something that I had had in my early adolescence uh, with times spending spent with my grandmother. My grandma was deaf and, you know, her world was silent. And so I had a great deal of experience just resting in that silence with her. And tattooing was one of those things that it just, it helped bring up that ex- old experience of just being still being quiet so that's pretty much what inspired me to to be a, a tattoo artist that's a very powerful story in terms of how you connect tattooing with the 
being silent with your grandmother in those moments. And it's also amazing that you knew at such a young age that was a calling in your heart. Yeah, I was 10 years old. Yeah, it's very young. Well, a few of us find our calling and then switch things, right? I always wanted to be a, an, an archaeologist until I went to a dig and there was so much dirt. I was like, mm, not for me. <laughs> yeah, that's a little messy. Yeah. You know, I, I would be a little remiss to not mention um, a few other things that inspired me to be t a tattoo, get into tattooing was mm -hmm. uh, tattoos are cool. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, my, my parents were both bikers and I, I grew up in a world where there was lots of burly men with tattoos around on them. And, you know, there was a certain mystique about tattooing. And I, I think that really was a, was also a draw for me. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to ask um, what you think attracts people to tattoos, because I know a number of my friends just absolutely love them. And then when they get one, they can't just get one. <laughs> they have to get lots. Right. Yeah. And they're so beautiful. Yeah, we, we sometimes say we put comeback in the ink, so you come back. <laughs> but, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the, and they, they are good. very addictive. Over the years, I've, I've developed this relationship with what I do. And the, the bond and how I see tattooing has, has really changed over the years. To me, tattooing is very sacred. It's an extremely sacred thing that that I, I do for people. And I try to, you know, always hold steadfast to keeping that in my, my mind. You know, when, when you look at, you know, the history of tattooing, you know, it's ancient, like it's, it's been going on for years. There's thousands of years behind what we do. As long as people have been standing upright and walking, They've been hunching over and tattooing themselves. So there, there's this long history that's involved with tattooing in it. And there's, there's a certain, there's an energy. There's this old energy about marking the skin. As a tattooer, I, I feel that energy because I'm standing on the shoulders of my an ancestors and the shoulders that I stand on, it's almost like they rise up in me and they have this old, sacred, deep power. You know, in, in some traditions, tattooing is, is looked at, you know, was, was only used by the shamans or the very enlightened people would, would do tattooing. It's only in modern times that tattooing sort of turned to little bit of a darker phase where mm -hmm. you know criminals and bad guys would only get tattoos and mm -hmm. we've certainly come out of that phase definitely that was my introduction to tattoos that um i mean i remember my parents saying not that i want to diss my parents but um i just remember saying that that with growing up the only people that they knew were people were um sailors Mm -hmm. and people who were in the sex trade. And so to them, they regarded tattoos as something very negative. Um, whereas my sister and I growing up didn't see it that way at all because we knew people who had tattoos. And so um, it's interesting kind of those stories that, and so to me, I was really amazed right now that you shared that 
used to be used by old monks and so on and it, that the tradition comes from there i think that's mm -hmm. uh, that's very it's not well known it goes back it goes back to the beginning of our our origins you know it, they you know when they have found mummies ancient egyptian mummies they've had tattoos uh when they dug up uh, the ice man and he had tattoos on him so as long as they've found human life tattooing has been interwoven into people's lives for thousands of years so there there is this very old uh, sacred energy about it i think what attracts people to that to tattooing is that old energy sort of pulls on them in, in in a deeper part of themselves so tattoos you know they can in, invoke uh, healing i've watched many many clients over the years heal from a very simple little tattoo it's you know it marks a rite of passage in our lives tattooing can empower people and that's that's one of the most brilliant things that i've seen in in doing work is watching people you know heal and grow just because i put a mark under their skin it's but it has this power it has a deep power in in tattooing to do that wow would you be able to share a little bit more about like give it an example without naming people's names about how um like an example of when that happened that you gave someone a tattoo and the change you saw in them yeah um i had a friend come to me and he he sort of just kind of busted through my doors one evening it was a later in the evening and he had just that day he had lost his child and oh, wow. it was he was just in the throes, the depths of despair. He didn't know what to do or say, or but he just spontaneously, he knew he had to come and get a tattoo. He wanted her name over, over his heart, you know, and, and just the thought of recalling that old memory, it just brings up a lot of emotion for me because it was mm -hmm. a, a very deeply emotional time for him and, and, the experience between us was, was I'd almost say unworldly. So he brought in a group of his friends, like his brother and a couple of his friends came in and, and I tried to convince him. I'm like, no, this is not the time. Let's just talk. Let's have a coffee and, you know, we'll do your tattoo another time. He wasn't having it. He, ha he needed that tattoo that moment. There was no way I was going to get out of that. So I just recognized in that moment, I had to surrender. I had to give this man what he needed. It's not like I felt like I was giving him much, but it turned out to be more than I could have ever imagined. I drew up the design and I put it on his chest, stenciled it on. And as we began the tattoo, uh, and this is an experience I have many times, my hands got hotter and hotter. And there was there was just this, eternal moment uh, this presence that opened up in the room my client and i we were just completely silent for the duration of the session i could feel the the struggle and and the the pain that he was going through but i i didn't make it mine i didn't internalize it as my my pain i just held space i just stayed silent 
through the whole process. And, you know, every, every part of the process was a very loving embrace. This is a story he shared with me recently. Uh, two days later, at, at the funeral for his deceased child, he looked down at the tattoo and it was completely healed. It was like it had been there for six months. He said there was not, there was no scab, no flaking. The skin was completely healed over. Hearing that, I'm really not surprised. Like it doesn't, that doesn't blow my mind Mm -hmm. because of the experience that unfolded. And he said that 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 tattoo was one of the most powerful things in, in that time that helped him move forward. Oh, that's a very powerful story. I was uh, <laughs> trying to wipe my tears away. Um, I was really moved by that story. What it shows is that um, healing can take many different forms. It can be one moment in time that we share with someone that we share love. It could be a tattoo that we keep close to our heart. There's just so many different ways that we heal, right? And that mm-hmm. the other thing that I've learned in my life is that sometimes it doesn't require big things. Sometimes it's really the smallest things that have the biggest impacts. Yeah. Just from the conversation, it is very clear that tattooing is a dream come true for you. In your book, you share about how Walt Disney said that there was four factors that help us move forward towards making our dreams a reality. One of them is uh, curiosity. The other one is confidence, uh, courage, and consistency. And yet so many people are not living their dreams right now. Um, I was just wondering why you thought that was. Okay, so a story I'd shared in my book, that there was a tattoo convention uh, called the Royal City Tattoo Expo. I think it was in 1994 that this convention was going on. So this was very early into my career. I'd only been tattooing a year. I got it in my head that, you know, I've been tattooing a year now. I should go and tattoo at this convention and so, so I, I call up the owner of the, the convention and I said, I, I want to come and tattoo at your show. And he's like, who, who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm Ned. I'm Ned Burwell. And well, what's your shop name? And I said, Ned's Needles. I know that's a ridiculous name. <laughs> I only kept that name for a year. But um, so I'm like Ned's Needles. And I was just proud as punch to, to be calling him and He's like, well, I never heard of you. Are you a scratcher? Do you tattoo out of your kitchen? I said, well, no, I, I have a space set up in my home to tattoo. And he goes, well, you're a scratcher. And I said, well, not exactly. And he says, well, look, this tattoo convention is for professionals. This is not for amateurs. I said, okay, fair enough. But why don't I come and show you my work? And then if you think I'm good enough, then you know, you can let me in. If not, then I'll just come and spectate. He says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few minutes. So we set a time to meet. So I, I go to his shop and, and I'm driving there and I'm, I'm like thinking, wow, this is, this is kind of crazy. This is a really, this is a, this is a really big deal. I hadn't really thought about, you know, how big of a, a deal this was going to be if, if he said yes, but but then my mind would just jump back in and say, no, I'm never going to get in. I've only been tattooing a year. And so I get there and he and his wife are in this heated fight. And I can well imagine why they would be fighting because he was putting on this massive convention. He had artists coming from all over Canada 
and it was it was wow. a really big deal so i'm sure the stress level in his environment was at an all-time high so i walk in and they're screaming at each other and i'm like oh my gosh they both stop and they look at me and i as to say who are you what do you want and i said i'm ned i'm here to show you some of my work and so he tells me to go sit down and they're right in the middle of this fight and and so his wife is, is extremely irritated with him she storms out mm-hmm. he comes over and he's got he's got all this fight energy all over him he's he's worked up i hand him my portfolio and he's violently flipping through the pages and i'm thinking oh my gosh this is going to be over before it begins and then suddenly he he stops and turns the book back to the beginning and starts to slowly go through the work. I'm like, oh, this is a really good sign. And then he, he sets the book down. And he says, Ned, how long have you been tattooing? And I said, a, a year. I've, I've been tattooing a whole year. And I, I think he kind of snickered at that. But he said, look, Ned, this convention is for people like you. And I was beside myself. Like, what do you, what do you mean this convention is for people like me? I'm really not even a professional at this moment. And so he gave me a, a package and said, look, mail, mail in your registration and send, send your money. You can come. I want you to come and tattoo at this convention. I'm driving home and I'm like, I'm literally beside myself. And I'm, and there's a whole part of me that's going, holy crap, this is, this is too, too much. And I'm, I'm not ready for this. So I, I decide by time I get home, I've, I've already made up my mind. I'm not going to tattoo at it. I'm just going to go spectate. A week before the, two weeks before the show, he called, the owner calls me up and he says, Ned, where's your registration? I said, oh yeah, um, about that thing. <laughs> I, I think you're right. I, I should just come spectate and, you know, I'll just sit this one out. And he says, no, you're, you're coming to tattoo. And he was so adamant. And I, I get off the phone and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. I'll, I'll mail it out. I hang up the phone and instantly I'm like, screw that. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> so it's a week before the convention and I had, hadn't mailed the package cause I wasn't going to. And he calls me up again and he, the persistence <laughs> and, and he says, Ned, where is your registration? And I said, yeah, gosh, I'm, I'm just not ready. And he says, you're ready. You're coming. He says, look, I'm going to give you the booth for half the price. Pay me at the end of the weekend if you make money. So I'm like, okay, I, I can't turn that down. I'd be disrespecting him. Mm-hmm. So I, I went and that weekend turned out to be one of the best things I ever did for my career. I actually met uh, a tattoo artist that I became uh, really good friends with. And then I met another tattoo artist who became a very strong mentor for me, not just in tattooing, but in life as well. He was an old sailor and he was just wise and very spiritual. And I'd met him that weekend. I didn't remember him, but years later he remembered me. And the result of that weekend, it caused him to help me later in my career. But wow. one, one of the really cool things that happened was that in the middle of the convention, I'm, I'm beside one of the best tattooists in the country, or, and I was, he was the best in the show. His name is Mike Austin. And 
Paul put me beside him and I'm thinking, why did you put me beside this guy? He's the best and I'm <laughs> got to be the worst. <laughs> it's just like a, a, a good and bad thing. So, but in the middle of the show, I look over to Mike and we were beside the stage and it was, the music was just blaring and I don't like loud music. I never have. So I look at Mike and I said, music's loud. And he goes, yeah, no doubt. eh?" in that moment, chills ran through my body. I had dreamt that exact scenario. It was, it was a dream that I had and it just, it blew my mind because my dream had become reality. And, and I, there wasn't, it didn't take me but a second to realize how incredibly uh, thankful and grateful I was for that moment. You know, I was, I was 18 years old at that convention. I, I wasn't even old enough to drink. I didn't go to the after party. I went back to the hotel and drew pictures. <laughs> so the story goes hand in hand with your, your next question. Walt Disney, he's, he said the, the four C's. The only thing that I wanted to say about that story was basically that um, it's amazing how like it just feels like we're being guided. And that despite that, our doubt, like the energy of doubt, how it can just kind of potentially sabotage things, how we kind of sabotage ourselves and get in our own way. And the universe wasn't having it this time. <laughs> No. The universe was going to get you to that convention or source or God was going to get you to that convention because that's what you needed to do. And that's, mm -hmm. um, that's definitely one of my favorite stories. Yeah, there, there was so much momentum that was created from me tattooing at that show. And, you know, I, I, I tend to think all that momentum that was created from the show was pulling me to the show. Mm -hmm. And that, that was why the owner was so adamant. And it, it's funny, like years later, uh, I interviewed the owner of the show for a project that I'm working on. And I told him that the story and he just smiled and he, he said, Natty, he says, you, you were meant to be at that show. You, mm -hmm. it was, it was obvious that you had this, this thing about you and, and you were, you were a genuine tattooer which was pretty cool. And, and what I heard later was that a lot of artists were pissed off that I was there. You know, they were like, you know, saying, what, what's this kid doing over in the corner? What's why, why did they let a scratcher in here? And, mm -hmm. and I found out many years later, my mentor, the old sailor, he stuck up for me. He didn't share that story with me till like maybe 20 years after it happened. Well, I guess he was standing around and people were complaining and, and he said, that kid over there has more heart than all of you guys. He's, he's got a real tattooer's heart. So obviously mm -hmm. he saw something in me that, you know, was, I was destined to be a tattoo artist mm -hmm. well, and, and not that I'm the best tattoo artist, but mm -hmm. like there are so many talented, great tattooers. It's just the energy of tattooing is something that I that I hold um, in, in my soul. I'm wondering about why you think some people are just doing the things that they think they should be doing and that potentially living their dreams and taking risks like the one you did is not even a possibility for them. Well, you know, when we look at the four C's, this will answer that question. Mm -hmm. I think there's, there's so much that I didn't share in my book or the last podcast about the four C's mm -hmm. when I 
first saw that quote by Walt Disney, four factors that help us move forward in our dreams, curiosity, confidence, courage, and consistency. Every one of those things I, I could line up with in my life. And it's something that I think was part of my life. And, and when I looked at, look at Walt Disney's life, he was, he's such an inspiring guy and in a master creator. So I'll start with curiosity from my perspective is our ability to let go of what we know, you know, so that that's, that can be tricky for us to do. We, we tend to tread in the, the mind and we stay within the confines of what we know. When you're, when you're curious, you're seeking an experience or you're seeking um, knowledge that you don't have any experience or knowledge of, you know, and there was a psychologist, uh, his name was E.J. Gibson. He created this process in, in, or he called, he created this, um, uh, he named, I don't know how to explain it. He created the bottom up processing. I guess that's the easiest way to say it. So bottom up processing is a way of analyzing data. We generally go top to bottom. We went top to bottom processing is going from what you know into what you don't know. But bottom to top processing is going from what you don't know into what you do know. And that's a little harder for us to do because, again, we have to suspend the mind. Mm-hmm. In yeah. bottom up processing, we use the senses. But I when I look at bottom up processing, I think some of the greatest philosophers and, you know, the people that have brought forward some of the deepest wisdom in this world use that process. They go into the unknown. So I do that in, in my writing. I I'll ask myself a question. My curiosity uh, triggers me to ask a question, like a difficult question. You know, what is, what is the nature of my soul? I've asked myself that thousands of times, you know, what, what is the silence? What is God? What is the, what is the unmanifest? So when I, when I was writing my book, I threw out all these questions, questions that my mind couldn't answer. Mm -hmm. So it was and it's an important part of our, our growth and how we achieve our dreams is to be curious you know, Descartes says that a substance minus its attributes cannot be known to the human mind. So our mind, it categorizes things. Therefore, our curiosity invokes the mind to search for attributes that we may not see. You know, we, we will look in our curiosity, we look for things that are not... Um, readily visible to us. So to be curious about anything, you know, puts us in the state where we can grow and expand uh, our knowledge. And in closing with curiosity, curiosity begets growth. We grow when we're curious. That's, that's my mm-hmm. uh, empirical knowledge of curiosity. So that's, that's a handful. That's a lot of stuff to say just about one word. Yeah, I mean, it's wow, that's <laughs> a lot to think about and digest. 
I think one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking is that um, how many times I go to judgment instead of going to curiosity. I think my mm. the times that because we think we know what's happening, we go to a memory or a past experience or what we think we know of the moment instead of taking that moment in time and saying, okay, I'm going to perceive this moment as it is without all of the other crap from all the previous history that may have happened or anything else that I might have thought about or how it could relate. And I think that's challenging because so often what we experience in the present moment has to do with what we believe about the past. Mm -hmm. So we bring all of those ideas and experiences to the present moment. And so it's hard to live from that. It feels hard to live from that place of curiosity. And often our past is unrelated to the moment we're in. Mm-hmm. We we make a connection, but the connection may not be there. You know, I did this with my employees when I when I had my tattoo shop in Ingersoll. Um, something would happen. I would first go to instead of being angry, uh, I would say, "What happened? Tell me why." So I let my curiosity, I'd satiate my curiosity first before I I engaged any judgment. And then after they told me, you know, I wasn't always good at this. And this is something that I learned later in, in my practice of being in a, in a boss. And I would sit back and I'd think about it for a minute before I responded. Okay, so moving on, confidence. We covered courage, now confidence. Confidence is believing in herself. You know, simply put, it's just the belief that we can do something. When I look at confidence as a a motivating factor for us to accomplish our, our dreams, you know, I look back at, you know, when I went to that expo, the, the day that I walked into that auditorium, I, I was scared out of my mind. (laughs) I, I looked around and there was 50 Canadian tattooers there. And I knew that every one of them knew that I didn't know what I was doing. And and that's what my mind was telling me. And so to, to override that, I, I don't even know where I found it. I just, I just said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And, and my confidence came in staying with, with the moment. I remember you know, getting ready for the show. And I, I told this to Seamus in our, our last podcast as well, but it was, it was such an important aspect that I shared in that, that time. And I'll share it again, is that when I was packing the car, I said, what do I have to do right now? Pack the car. <laughs> That's obvious. So I can go and do a tattoo show. And then when I drive the car to the show, open the front door, carry your stuff in. You know, that's how I was able to get enough confidence is I, I chopped everything up into little bite-sized pieces for myself because I, I was scared just to pull that door open. Who's, who's afraid to open a door unless we don't have confidence to, to know that we can handle what's behind it. And my confidence come from just the willingness to, to cut that up into little small pieces. So that, that's a great tip for anyone who is, is lacking a little confidence. Just break up that goal into little mini things and reward yourself. Okay, mm-hmm. so with confidence, we employ trust, 
that we can do the things we can do. So not only do we need to believe in ourselves, there's there's a, a component where I feel like we need to have faith. We, we sometimes um, only employ faith in desperate measures. And I, I think if we practice employing faith more consistently in our life, that it it supports our confidence. My faith, you know, greatly supports my confidence in my life. I've watched how uh, I've been in situations where they looked very doom and gloom or it was a bad situation. But my, my learning how to suspend, like drop the mind, drop the commentary of my mind and just say, you know what? I have faith. It's, it's, it's such a, a simple thing, but the, the benefits can be very rewarding and it, it helps and assists us in our ability to be confident. And this is something I did with my apprentices. When I was training the tattoo artists that worked with me, I knew it was important for me to instill confidence in them because when I, when a client comes in to get a tattoo with me and and this is a, a typical scenario that can play out. When they come in to get their first tattoo by me, they're nervous. They, they don't have a tattoo. And sometimes people, when they're nervous, they, they begin to control all the thing, little things they can control because they feel out of control because something's going to happen to them mm-hmm. that they have no control over. They can't control how painful this is going to be or what they think it's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. so I when I when I am when that client comes to me if I don't have confidence they have no faith in me and then their need to control goes to the roof they'll they'll start micromanaging little minute things so what are you doing there what why are you doing this and is, is that going to be you missed a spot and and it's it sort of brings this real edgy nervousness energy into the the session. So what I what I learned is that I have to be confident as a tattoo artist. I have to be the professional. And so I trained my artist right from the start. I, I would tell them, you are a professional tattoo artist. You are undergoing training and you know more than the client knows about the process of tattooing. Mm-hmm. And you know, when, when they start to second guess you stand strong in what, you know, you know, and I, I would instill confidence in so many ways, any way I possibly could with, with my artists. So it's a, a really big factor in allowing us to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think so many times, I know the times when I've struggled the most is really when the element of doubt comes in. And it, you know, for me, it only takes like a small little grain of like, well, what if, or maybe this isn't the right thing, or maybe, and it just, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it can really feel like it can be a hindrance. And I think that's what you were talking about, dropping the mind and saying, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take it in small little steps. I'm just gonna get myself to the door and from the door to the stage and from the stage to un, you know um, to get my tools ready. And That's I think right. that helps us to continue to so all we need to have is confidence in those little tiny micro moments. 
That's right. Mm-hmm. It, it, it certainly made it a lot easier to accomplish what I was trying to accomplish. Now, the, the next one mm-hmm. is courage. And I, I love I love courage. Courage is our willingness to abandon our fears. So, and that that's something that's been my, when I look back at my upbringing, my father uh, was a very courageous man. You know, he was, he was definitely a leader and he taught me so much about becoming a leader in my life. You know, I, as I grow older and, and as I gather more wisdom, I, I hope to be a leader of people, but he, first and foremost, he taught me how to be a leader of myself. And, and when, when we're courageous, we, we abandon our fears and we, we grow very strong by just that simple thing, letting go of fear. Fear is doubt. It's worry. It's the body taking the mind, taking ownership of our body. So fear, you know, provides disempowerment Mm -hmm. where versus courage, it provides empowerment. When we're courageous, we become empowered. We become empowered to do things that our mind doesn't know that we can do. And this has been the case for, if you read any courageous story of somebody who inserted their courage into a situation, they did things that are unhuman. They could accomplish things that are seemingly impossible. So mm-hmm. it's it's a, a fine attribute in our, in our ability to move forward in our lives. You know, and I, of course, I had to do this when I walked into that tattoo expo. You know, it was, if I had of if I had to let my mind overcome me with my fears, there's no way I would have pulled that door open. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite authors, and he's, he wrote a book called I Am That, Nisara Gadada. He, he said, stay desireless and, and fearless. Now this, stay desireless and fearless. I remember reading the book, I Am That, and when, when, I, when I came across that line in the book, I set the book down. Have you ever heard that before, Stay Desireless and Fearless? No, just in your book, <laughs> which I, I, I had to kind of grapple with because where my mind went, I had heard the fearless before, but the desireless was a new concept for me because um, I had always heard that you know, if you if you believe in God, for those people that do, that we were all created out of sources desire to get to know itself. And so if we are to be desireless, <laughs> does that mean we don't create because uh, creations come out of desires? And I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if they were referring to don't attach to the desires. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I was grappling with that as well. Well, when you look at when you really look at the anatomy of desire, desire is 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 more of a human aspect, and that verbiage is, you know, is used in our our humanness. The because the mind desires desire. When you look at really dig into the the idea of desire, would would God or the infinite 
source of everything have any sort of desire, it would just be its will. Hmm. And, you know, it, its will will be done. There's no, I don't, I don't think our source, you know, sits around wishing for things. And des- <laughs> desire. It's a good point. <laughs> so desire itself is, is our, is the mind. The mind creates desire. And the, in a, in our divine state, there is no desire. There's knowing. There's just mm-hmm. pure knowingness. Mm-hmm. And it, knowing is not possessive, nor does it need for anything. It just knows. Like when you know something, you, you have that, that wisdom of the strength of, of knowing about something. So when I read that, that quote by Nisara Gadada, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Mm-hmm. Stay desireless and fearless. I thought these, those, those two words, if I could follow that in my life, man, the, the strength and the connection I would have to my Lord. So it's, it's something that I, mm-hmm. that I talk about often. And I, I tell people, ponder that, ponder what that means to you. Think about it for a minute. Mm-hmm. And, and come up with your own ideas of how that would become an, an empowerment for you to move forward. Mm-hmm. So that's courage. Yeah, and I've been sitting with the hope fearless piece because I, I think that's one that I've definitely been pondering about in terms of like, if I wasn't afraid, what would I be doing? Like if I didn't wasn't worried about this or that or the other, what would motivate my heart? Like what would I want to do? Who do I want to be? What things would I want to be involved in? And I think it's interesting when because that helps you shift a little bit in thinking that if, if I wasn't held back by my own thoughts, where would I be now, right? So, yeah, it's definitely something to think about. Absolutely. Now, consistency. Um, consistency is our ability to show up for life, okay? And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more. Being consistent, I I find the way for me to be the most consistent in, in my life is to do things for the pure joy of doing them. You know, when when we're we're sort of always doing things for a result, it it doesn't, you know, draw me into being as consistent because the result is so far off sometimes if it's a, a long delayed reward. Like writing my book, I, I had to be consistent. And that that reward was not going to come for a very long time. And so mm-hmm. what I, what I found that I needed to do is, is just, you know, find joy amongst doing all the parts of what we do, you know? So even when I was editing the book, I had, I had three different editors. One was a substantive edit and then a copy copy edit and then a proofread so some brilliant minds helped um, bring that book together in its in all its glory but going through all those edits was like i i had to stay consistent i could i had to find joy in what i was doing mm-hmm. or i would have never got through all those things 
when you remove yourself from needing to achieve your goals and you just plunge yourself in the joy of doing something, you know, it's, you find so many wonderful experiences are wrapped up in what you didn't know could be so much fun and, and nothing crushes consistency more than having our expectations let down. So when we're too goal orientated, we sometimes put too much importance on the goal and when it's going to arrive to us. And because a lot of goals that we have in our life or, or you say dreams that we have in our life, we don't know when that's going to manifest. So if we're always staying in the realm of needing for that end result, we miss the joy of the, the, how the goal or our dreams come to us, you know, because one of the tendencies of the mind is that the mind always tracks progress. You know, it thinks in this linear fashion. So like I could be doing this interview with you and my mind is tracking many things. You know, you could cut me off and I say, okay, that's unconscious to me. My mind will calculate that. And then you cut me off again. And then the third time I'm like, Hey, you've cut me off three times, <laughs> but how did, how did we know that it's the mind? It's constantly, it, it's a, it's a little bean counter <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's, it just sits there ticking little beads, little beans, you know? And so with consistency, sometimes we have to fire the bean counter that the little, mm-hmm. the little girl or little guy in you that's counting beans, like, in worrying about how fast you're getting something or, or if you're getting enough of your share, you know, you have to fire that person because it it takes away from our ability to be consistent, you know, when, and then when we feel like we haven't made the appropriate amount of progress because our bean counter is saying, hold on here. Um, you haven't moved forward in, in three months here to your dream. So when the little bean counter stands up and gives its a report and makes the announcement, there's a great tendency for our, our mind to just throw in the towel. And that, that draws us away from being consistent in our life. Because if we're, we're constantly counting, we, we start to get depressed about all the failures in, in not the, the, the rewards that, the pure joy of doing something offers, Mm -hmm. you know, so we take in the idea of consistency is that we take in all of our accomplishments and it, it makes things a lot easier in the path of achieving our dreams. Mm -hmm. So funny. You were talking about the little bean counter. Um, I like to use compassion with my little bean counter. Um, I usually (laughs) like to, and this idea comes from Emmanuel Dagger who's basically saying, you know what, I know you're worried, I got this. I know that you're, you know, you're counting the beans, because you want to make sure that there isn't enough. I got this, I got us, right. And so I think that's helped me not to kind of make my little bean counter the enemy. Um, I wanted to go back to something you said about consistency, which I thought was like, I thought, wow, like I had never thought about it this way. Um, The comment you made about consistency as joy in the moment. Um, Because when, as I was reading that in your book, I thought consistency, yeah, that makes sense because, you know, I want to be consistent that 
no matter what out there is show, shown to me, like, for example, if one of my, for example, if one of the goals that I, I have, or one of the things, one of my dreams is to make sure that I am financially independent, but I have a whole bunch of bills, I have to consistently align to the, to the belief and the vibration that I am abundant. And so to, I always thought consistency was, well, you know what, I'm just going to believe and just, you know, align to the vibration. It doesn't matter what's happening in my external. It doesn't matter how many bills I have or whatever. Um, but you kind of give a different definition of consistency that I think it's much more palatable in the sense of like continuing to fight joy in the moment so that mm -hmm. it becomes, so that to enable that consistency to continue the commitment because it, that it, the, the other strategy that I have tried sometimes can feel very overwhelming. You're like, well, there's the bill. <laughs> and so, okay, do I feel like I'm lying to myself? Whereas if you can find joy in the moment and say, thank you, Bill, because I have an opportunity to pay you and it showed that I was able to get something. Thank you for reflecting my abundance. So finding joy in those moments enables us to achieve that consistency. I thought that was really great. Mm -hmm. And joy isn't always positive. Like you can be... Like, I, I don't think positive, being positive about everything is, is realistic. Like positivity sometimes, you know, is, is not going to get us through something that we need to be consistent with finding, finding what's positive, you know, may, may eventually make us feel worse, you know? So mm -hmm. the, the joy of, of just surrendering your attachment to the goal, you know, the joy of, of failure, you know, that, that doesn't sound like something to be joyful about, but again, when every time you fail, you learn ways to, to do it, to look a different direction, you know, in you know, the first thing I said about consistency is showing up for your life. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. You picked out, being in the moment and the pure joy of doing them. This is a, a story that I shared with Seamus in the podcast Awakening. It's on my You Matter site. It's a great podcast. I, I talked about um, my old teacher, Maharishi. He told this story about not being where his body was. So his head and his body were always in two different places. And I don't, I don't think I need to revisit the story, but that's the gist of it. We, we don't show up for our life often, mm -hmm. or we show up somewhere. And then next thing you know, we're, we're, our mind is in a different place. And for consistency, we, the willingness to just show up when I, like, if I go back to writing my book, be love and the next book that I'm working on now, awakened the reality of what is, when I look at that, I have to show up in front of that computer and find the joy of what I'm doing because there's, there's so much mundane wrapped up in, in, in our lives And the mundane is not so mundane when you can just suspend the mind and show up and be very present with what you're doing. So to, to really sum up, you know, the, the four C's curiosity is our ability to let go of what we know. Confidence is believing in yourself. Courage is the willingness to abandon your fears. And consistency is showing up for your life and finding joy for what you do. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. 
I did want to go back to the uh, story um, about the mind and body not being in the same space. And, and I had heard that before, but in the book, you put it so well. And I was thinking about all those moments and it's so true. So many of us are always constantly living in the future. Our minds are somewhere else and our physical bodies are somewhere else. So I, in the morning, I'm already at work. When I'm at work, I'm already home. <laughs> when I'm home, I'm already the next day at work. Um, and so it's true. And so ever since I had read that, um, I really took the opportunity to be more mindful and ensure that both my mind and my body were in the same place. And the more I showed up in the world, the more that I was acknowledged for being there in the sense that I, I think I got much more out of the present moment. And I think people got felt more seen and heard by me when I was truly there. Cause I think people mm -hmm. can always tell when you're not, you know, when your mind somewhere else and use just your physical body. And so it felt nice to kind of show up, you know, more presently for every moment of my life. Yeah. And a funny story, uh, my, my, a lot of my friends, my old time friends, they laugh at me because, you know, I'll come over and I'll visit them. And, uh, if any of my old friends are listening, they're just going to wiggle with laughter when I say this, but I'll, I'll go and visit a friend. And then there's this defining moment and it. It's a moment it's in from one second to the next. It's like, suddenly it's like time for me to go. <laughs> and I, I, I never knew I did this. Like I'd be having the most amazing conversation and right in the middle of it, I'd be like, okay, time to go. And I'd just get up and leave. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I lost, I lost focus. It's like, okay. Um, or usually I'd stay longer than I wanted or could. So it's like, oh, so I just have to break this off. I got to go. But you know, my friends would see it in me. They'd, they would start to see it coming before I, I knew that it was going to happen. They'd like, I'd start losing focus and I would lose the moment. Next thing you know, I'd be like, okay, I got to fly. And away I went. <laughs> and it, it was so funny when my friend Christy brought this up to me, like we died laughing and cause I could, I could laugh at myself. I love laughing at myself mm -hmm. and it's just a funny, funny quirk that I had. But I'd slowly lose we focus. Not... Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's great. We shouldn't take ourselves so seriously. I think so many times we do. We take ourselves yeah. serious, so seriously and our life so seriously. Absolutely. Um, my next question was around, it goes back to the, uh, the concept of living our dreams. Um, I know many people who don't know what their purpose is. And I wanted to ask you how we can help them find their heart's desires or life purpose. So I'm, I'm really glad you said heart's desires and cause it, it gives me a, an opportunity to tell a little story here. You know, when, when I was writing the book after it was finished, I had, I had my book be love calibrated. So I, I had applied a kinesiologist, a, a lady who did applied kinesiology, go through and measure the level of truth in, in the book using applied kinesiology. Now, some people out there may think that's a little foo-foo. Mm -hmm. uh, for others that follow uh, Dr. David R. Hawkins, mm -hmm. they'll know that, you know, he he put a lot of faith in into calibrating his material. So when she calibrated my book, it, it came in 
at an exceptionally high number and some some were some chapters were lower than i expected and some were higher than i expected and but i think it was chapter 2 came in very low and she so when she gave me the calibrations for the chapters she said there's something wrong in chapter 2 so i'm like okay so i i went through the chapter and i noticed i was using the word heart desire a lot and and so I, I stopped for a minute and I'm thinking it's, we, we covered this in the, in the last session. We talked to, I talked about desire is not desires of the mind. Mm-hmm. It's not of the, it's not a divine attribute. So in that first chat, that second chapter, I took out everywhere in that chapter that said heart's desire. And I, I called the the kinesiologist up and I said, can you calibrate chapter two again? She, she calibrated it and it shot way up, like noticeably up. And she says, Oh my God, what did you do to that chapter? And I said, I changed one word, one combination of words. I took out heart's desire Hmm. because our heart knows. And that's, that's the distinct difference is the mind desires it thinks it knows but the heart actually knows because and the heart knows because it's connected to the soul our Mm -hmm. soul the heart is like a doorway into the soul so that's why i believe that the heart knows so thank you for sharing that i think one of the questions i had around that chapter was um I guess is getting to understanding when it's your heart's desires. Cause, um, I know people that, for example, have said to me that, you know, like they feel they fall in love with the wrong person or like, you know, when there was like domestic violence in the relationship or that, um, that they uh, fell in love with someone that they feel they shouldn't have. And so then what happens is that they start, they stop trusting their heart because they're like, well, why would I have these feelings or emotions? So I was wondering if you could um, share a little bit about whether or not you think that goes back to the concept of desire and whether you think that's not really maybe truly the soul or really truly the heart. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I know there are people who stop trusting their hearts when things happen. Discernment is is such a a slippery uh, slope to climb in learning how to discern what is really the soul's purpose mm-hmm. and what what the mind desires. So knowing the difference between what my mind desires and is purposeful to my soul has has been the greatest tool that I I can access in my life. Now how we how we learn how to really find out what is in in the soul is by going into it <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it's 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 so simple it's it's silly but you think about it we stay stuck in the surface of the mind always we're always like i in in my past i would always be thinking in the mind and i'd be wishing and wanting so i was there was so much momentum to, you know, following and pursuing desires of the mind. I knew nothing about what 
the knowledge of my soul had there waiting for me. And so the the idea to learn what is what is purposeful in our life is and it what do we really where do we need to move? We need to, in my opinion, I feel like we need to get into a deeper relationship with our soul. And how we do that, the first step is suspending the mind. Mm-hmm. How do we know what our life purpose is? This is, that's a big question. Mm-hmm. It was a question that, well, remember I said, you know, I, I ask myself questions. My curiosity mm-hmm makes me ask questions. And so the one question that that burned in my mind, and it it burned because I I felt I needed to know my purpose in life. It wasn't just wasn't just something that I, I thought, Oh, yeah, I wonder what my purpose is and do 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 just carry on with my life. I needed to know. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's hilarious, because I I just was burning. And, and I remember running around like, a chicken with his head cut off. Anyone and everyone that I thought could tell me, I, I'd say, "Hey, um, what, is, what is the purpose of life?" And then, as, "What is my purpose?" You know, I couldn't wait to insert that. What I what I eventually learned is that no matter who I got in front of, they were never going to uh, tell me what my purpose is. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I don't care who who they are if they're great psychics or intuitives they won't know your purpose and the reason why another person could never know your purpose is because our purpose is rolling out as a live feed in our life so what i learned is that purpose is really about engaging in this moment and showing up for whatever's around me you know, and it doesn't mean that we we have to do or be everything that comes to us. Like if somebody comes into our life and they show up in our life and we know they're not a person that we should get involved with, you know, it's it may be purposeful to, to just keep distance. Mm-hmm. But really showing up for our life and engaging in what's going around you because our, our purpose comes to us in in all these little series of moments that we have in our life like i'm i'm sitting here now doing this podcast with you this is my purpose mm-hmm. you know there i used to think my purpose was one thing you know one giant thing is my purpose and everything outside of that was just small beans and i i my goal is to just focus on that one thing mm-hmm. That's not that's not the case for me anymore. I see my purpose unfolds in thousands of moments. Every time I get in front of another person, my purpose is there waiting for me to to embrace it. You know, what is what is why is that person in my life? Why have you shown up to do a podcast with me? You know, what is it that I need to share? What is it that I need to grow? What can I learn from you? Because there's, I'm sure there's hundreds of things I can learn from you while we explore all these questions for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what you just said is so powerful because you're right. I think we envision our life purpose as something where we get to and then we don't move from. 
But when you shift the perspective to my life purpose is in this moment, what I'm doing right now, what I'm committing to right now, um, it, I just think it makes it, it makes each moment much more powerful. Um, so being in child welfare was always my life purpose. And um, somebody very close to me once said to me, um, you know, I'm not sure if, if that's going to be something I don't know if that's your life purpose or, or you know, you're going to be doing that forever. And I was so upset um, because I was like, well, this was my dream. You don't know my dream. Right. And so but she, I think she was correct. And uh, and I think it goes to that point that when we open up to life, to all of these small moments and let ourselves be guided. I never thought I'd be doing podcasts and it just sort of I was sort of guided to it. Um, but what it has given me the gift it has been is an opportunity to learn from amazing people such as yourself, Ned, people that are doing incredible things and, uh, and to, and to learn. But if I had always just stuck with what I perceived was supposed to be my life purpose, because that's what I thought it was in this, just this one job or task or whatever, then I'd be missing out on all these opportunities to, to be more of myself, right. And to, for my soul to grow. Mm hmm life is constantly unfolding and manifesting around us we the mind is because it tracks things it it doesn't see anything the track most often it it doesn't it's not attuned to how the environment changes we have to go a little deeper in ourselves to attune ourselves to what what is around us right now what is happening around us being becoming more mindful and conscious of the life that's unfolding around you, you know, we get more and more in tune with life. The more we raise our consciousness itself, mm -hmm. we start to see, we start to feel, we start to know what's changing around us and what we're called to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that I got from your book was that, um, you know, it, because I'm constantly in my mind and have that at times and an ability to draw my mind, even if it's thinking about something that, you know, um, that is a dream of mine. Um, I'm missing the opportunity in the moment to get guidance and I'm missing the opportunity to attune to what my, um, the opportunity for me to do my, my the, the purpose that I'm supposed to do maybe for that day or for that week or for that month, which is part mm -hmm. of my life purpose. Right. And so it's, it's not getting caught in the mind and, and aligning to what is, to the guidance that's present, but it's constantly present, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did want to talk about how our thoughts uh, limit our abilities to make our dreams come true. I was recently playing with the thought that I can actually say no to my own mind. You know, I, I think it's important to maybe start out with um, what are thoughts? It's, it's an energy, mm -hmm. really. It's, it's an, an energy that kind of comes to us. When years ago, in my, before I met the Ashaya monks, I never really thought about thoughts or thinking. And I, I, I sort of lumped the two together as one thing. And when I, when you, mm -hmm. we look at thoughts, we, we have no control over what thoughts come to us. 
And, but what we do have control over is whether we think about them or not, you know, in thoughts, they, what they do is they lure us into the mind. And as we have one thought, we go into our mind and we think about it by thinking about a thought, it, it brings up other thoughts that sort of just drop in and then we start thinking about other. So we trap ourselves in the mind. We limit our experience and our tendency is that we repeat the past. So our thoughts limit our abilities to make, you know, what's purposeful move forward in our life because we're so busy reliving the past in our mind and we're, we're building up all this energy around the thoughts you know, it's, it's coming out of us. Like if you, I think I use this analogy with Seamus, if you walk into a bar and like, I'm a guy and, you know, if you walk into a bar with a big chip on your shoulder, I'm a tough guy. And, you know, like you don't even have to say a word. It's like your, your energy, your, what you're thinking about is attracting a big fight to you. So our, our thoughts sort of become these things that they emanate out of our, our, our bodies into our auras and they start to really pull in all, everything that's in alignment with those thoughts. So if we're stuck in the tread of the mind, repeating past experiences, you know, we, they it limit our ability to move forward. And when you look at the nature of thoughts, and this is something the Ashaya has taught me is that they may not be true, real or mine. And my book really fleshes out mm -hmm. these topics. Um, and another aspect that I, I learned with the Ashai is that 80% of our thoughts are negative. I took some time with, with some of these things and I realized I, I charted and watched my thoughts and they are negative. Mm -hmm. So they, they really do hinder me and they're still negative today. Like I, I could be, there's less, less of those thoughts as as I grow in consciousness and, and learn to embrace being love and embrace the nature of my soul, it, it does seem like there's less of those thoughts that, that come in. But I watch my mind and my mind can still interject the most absurd things or rude things or inappropriate things. And I'm like, mm -hmm. just watch it go. You know, I, instead of yeah. grabbing onto it and thinking it or judging myself because this thought has come to me, I just let it go because a thought in our mind doesn't make up the sum of who we are. Mm -hmm. If, if we reduce ourselves to a thought in our head, we're, we're missing the mark, you know, we're missing the, the divine nature of the soul. You know, we have a mind, it's here for us. It's a great tool, but it's not who and what we are. Thank you for that. Monitoring our thoughts is so important. I don't think sometimes we're aware of how negative we are. I was wondering if you could share that lovely story from your friend um, who went to that center in, in about how his thoughts came back to him in a more verbal way that kind of help him realize about how he was treating himself. So can you share the story of Jeff? Yeah, Jeff, Jeff is a, he's a, a really dear friend of mine. He, when I first met him, he was in rehab and on my you matter site, his, this whole story is on there as well. Mm. Um, when, when he first got to the rehab, 
one of the counselors had him write all the, the things he thought about himself. Like he was struggling with addiction at that time. And so the thoughts about himself were sort of all centered around I'm, I'm worthless and I'm a piece of crap and, you know, I've got nothing to offer this world and why am I here? And so the, the counselor took that paper and just kind of squirreled it away. And near the end of his time at, in his rehabilitation at the rehab, the, the, the counselor set up this scenario where another person that was doing the program came up to him and, and started saying all these things that he had said to himself on that paper. You know, what are you doing here? Why are you even here? You're worthless. You know, like you're never going to get over this. And he just had all these things. And, and Jeff, uh, his name's Jeff Roberts. And I know he won't mind me mentioning this because he uses a story as a tool to teach people. He's, he's a great teacher now in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff was like, he was tolerant and patient. And then, and then he wasn't, <laughs> he started to come at the guy and like, who are you to say this about me? And, and, and that's when the counselor jumped in, in between them and, and showed him the paper. And, and he, the counselor said, if he can't say these things to you, why can you say those things to you? Mm-hmm. And it, it was a very powerful story that Jeff shared with me. It's crazy. Like there, there's so many times where the mind just says the most awful things. And our job is just yeah. to, pay no attention to it give it no life if we give those thoughts life we become the negativity that's dropping into our minds mm-hmm. in learning how to be just a, a silent witness it, it's it has mm-hmm. there's so much power found in becoming a witness to your mind so it doesn't limit your ability to be purposeful you know the one of my old teachers used to say the mind is like a jealous lover the more attention you give it, the more it requires, you know, and one of the biggest things in making our purpose come true. And I, I say purpose instead of dreams. Like it's, it's good to dream. Dreams are fine, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. how to really make something that's purposeful come true in our life. My view of the world is that the world itself is a subject. We look at this, material world like this is everything's physical the world is an object it's a a conversation that arises out of the soul from the divine and into manifestation you know all things come into form are just pure expressions of god itself and Mm -hmm. whether it's whether our mind labels it good bad or otherwise it's all expressions you know and the creative aspect of our lord is always being expressed what this is something that I, I'm, I really go deeply into in my new book, Awakened, but it's something that my tattooing has taught me. You know, last session we talked a great deal about me being a tattoo artist. Mm-hmm. And this is another experience of awakening that tattooing had brought to me is, is while I was tattooing, I'm creating. I'm in the mode of I'm creating something what I realized was that over and this took a long time for me to really grasp this is that it wasn't me, my mind, my ego would, would love to take all the credit and it needed credit and praise, 
but it wasn't me that's that's creating what's happening. I noticed that while in the midst of creation, I was purely a witness that was going for the ride. And it seemed like 99% of the creation was already made up in the unmanifest. It was sitting in the, the formless or in the silence of my soul. And it was just channeling through me. It, it's wild. Like in, in athletes will talk about this too, where they get into the zone or they're in the gap. You know, we all, people that do things on a, on a high level or a performance level, you know, will understand exactly what I'm talking about. So our, our, our destiny coming through us, we sometimes have to realize is that we're, there's only 1% of us required to actualize that, that creation. 99% of our destiny is, is made up in the unmanifest, in the formless, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and we, Mm -hmm. when we call a thing to come to form, we're calling the creative intelligence to use this as a vehicle. (laughs) Okay. That that's a little deep, right? So when we Mm -hmm. call a thing into the world, so we, we say we have a purpose or a dream or a desire, we're calling something to come into the world. What we're doing is we're calling the creative intelligence to use us as this vehicle, you know, to manifest it's the divine reality. Uh, Prentice Mumford, he wrote a book called, I think I pronounced his name right. Um, he wrote a book in 1889 called Thoughts or Things. He, like what I'm talking about now is not a new concept. The, the language I use is, is mm-hmm. comes out of my experience. And then, but th- these are not new concepts. What I'm talking about, you know, in the late 1800s, they knew thoughts are things. They become things. So how the mind limits our ability to make our dreams come true is it's never, it's never the mind of the creator that moves creation itself. It's, it's the experience of connecting to creation itself that in the, the willingness to just be a vehicle that makes creation happen. There's so much there. <laughs> um, if you could dive a little bit deeper into the concept of um, manifesting to bring forth a creation and how, from my perspective, I do believe that there are multiple potentialities and possibilities out in the manifest world. So right now there's a, a Giselle that is extremely abundant and is living all her life dreams. And, uh, and then on the opposite spectrum, there's a Giselle that is, having a terrible time potentially and so all of these experiences exist within this reality uh in the unmanifest and it really depends on what i align to in order to bring that into experience i was just wondering what your thoughts on that were Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of concepts out there now about creating your reality and the the one thing that i i can say about manifesting your reality is what's more important is learning how to be connected with the soul. It's sort of like, um, you know, putting somebody in a race car that has a, a beginner's license, you know, <laughs> you, you don't do that. Like that's true. 
and so the 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 most practical and logical thing to do is is learn how to uh, bring the mind into a place of peace and harmony and and learn how to live within the 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 depth of your soul and the depths of your soul will will bring forward you know what's purposeful in your life and your ability to create it is amplified tenfold by not being so subject to the mind and not being a tie- tied and tethered to the attachments of the mind. I love this quote by you. The world does not need to change in order for me to be at peace. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. I, I love some of the stuff that you've picked out of my book because I, this is, this is an important quote. There's, there's a lot, I think there's some really cool things being said in it and not that I have a ton to say about it, but it's, this quote is true for me because my peace doesn't come from anything outside of me. Now, if somebody walks up and slaps me in, in the face, then it is going to be hard for me to stay at peace. Like, obviously we're, we're all, I'm, we're all in the midst of mastering these concepts, but and this is something that I, I'm constantly practicing when and when I when I tend to leave my peace, I I try to 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 acknowledge, okay, hold on here. I've I'm I'm moving into this place of, you know, irritation or I feel unsettled or I'm not happy. And so the the idea is that I, I notice that more and more in my life and when we notice the frequency of that we've moved out of our peace, it's, it's an invitation in that moment to, to subtly shift back inside. And I, I embrace this quote a lot in, in, in my days, nothing in this world needs a change for me to be at peace. And it doesn't need the change because peace is a much bigger quality than, than what we may think. And I'll, I'll explain that mm-hmm. there's a lot of people and, and myself included, I was constantly chasing happiness. And I, I talked about this in the, the preface of my book. Mm-hmm. I was always needing to be happy, but what I really, what I was really after was peace. So when we're not at peace, we're sometimes it's because we're chasing this constant need to be happy. And what is happiness? Um, I would say I'm uh, in the present moment, enjoying myself, uh, feeling uh, completely free. But I, I think people's definition of happiness varies. Yeah, you, you, I, you touched on it there. So yeah. to me, happiness is an emotion. And and it is often coupled with an experience in our mind, you know, or, or in the body. And the, the quality of happiness is, is that it's part of our humanness. And, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. It's great to be happy. But it, it, it pales in comparison to being at peace because what happiness is, begins and ends with an experience in the body and mind and our emotions 
but where peace is, it picks up in the, the nature of our soul. Peace is, is a quality of the soul, which is divine in nature. And Mm -hmm. we can't get our peace through happiness. You know, it's peace. The is its natural response is comes out of the relationship that we have with our soul. And when we get into a relationship with the soul, with the deeper aspect of ourselves, peace is a natural quality that just starts to happen. Whereas happiness is relative to conditions outside of ourselves. Peace is not contingent on anything going on. You know, even amidst uh, chaos, we can have peace. But we, we won't be happy because happiness is, you know, puts all these conditions around, you know, I'm, I'm happy when, if, mm-hmm. if this chair was a little softer, I'd be more comfortable. Like <laughs> I'd be happier. And I, I, I've, I have uh, people in my past. I, uh, when I look back and it's just hilarious. They're every second, every moment of their day was driven by, Oh gosh, I'd be happier if, uh, if this thing was a little different or that was different. And it's, yeah. it's a constant need that will never be satiated. Whereas peace it's something that satiates our, our entire being just by resting in it. And it's, it's never gone. You know, mm-hmm. all we have to do is set down the mind and rest in the silence of the soul. Oh, beautiful. Being able to drop the mind and be with yourself. When I successfully meditate and I'm with myself and with that silence, sometimes it's just glorious. I remember I had an experience one time where I had felt a peace that I had never, ever felt in my entire life. Like it was beyond anything I'd ever experienced. Yeah, it's it's bottomless in nature. Mm-hmm. And my my experience of the peace that resides in me has has changed over the years. It's always, it's never the same. It's like snowflakes. There's so many different aspects and layers to it you'll never experience the same piece twice because it's the quality and the nature of our soul it's the silence moving up into the body it's it's an expression of the divine and we experience it different because every second of every day the world is different and the divine is different everything is in motion and it's never staying the same it, it's only the mind that wants for things to stay the same so it can continue to catalog and track. But the divine itself is ever-changing and evolving. And so the experience of the peace that resides within us, you know, some days we ride the top of the wave, other times we get way down into the ocean, and the top of the ocean one day will be different than it is the next day. Thank you for that, because I think it allows us to be more present in the moment and not attached even with my own meditation, I do it regularly just because I love doing it. Uh, but I've had many different experiences, some which I have felt an enormous amount of love and then get upset with myself when I can't get there. <laughs> and so uh, thinking about it as kind of a different snowflakes, you get to appreciate each experience that you have without the needing for things to be the same or similar, mm-hmm. right? So, Yeah, in our, in our practice of meditation, we hold nothing. 
it, it's only we have will have this experience of and same as our experience with peace hold hold never hold that what you're what you're doing as soon as you hold something you're squishing out the divinity that it contains you're turn you're transforming that experience into a desire for the next moment and when we our desire is to to experience that the same thing and the the reality is that it's never going to be the same and as soon as we move into it bringing expectation into our experience of peace we're not we're not in a place where we can actually rest in it. And I hear so many people say, oh, I just can't meditate. I'm so bad at it. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about just really starting small, like try five minutes, try like a minute, even just going within. And I think that's a piece where we put so much pressure on ourselves to meditate for an hour and then be in perfect silence. And then it becomes a chore Then it loses the intended purpose, which is really to go inward and to go into our soul, right? Mm-hmm. And to Absolutely. Drop the mind. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Ned, for sharing your wisdom with us. Please check out Ned's book, Be Love, available on Amazon and his website, youmatter.ca. And please join us for another episode of the Love and Compassion Podcast with Giselle. Remember to subscribe and like, and if you want, write us a review. Thank you very much.